I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Crazy head coach news left, right, and center. Guys getting fired, guys retiring, guys getting moved upstairs in the building. But it's also Super Wild Card Weekend, Super Wild Card Weekend, which means we get to preview every single game and dive a little bit deeper this time because we don't have to get through 16 of them. So, Steve, I think for the first time, I can't remember the last time Steve missed a preview show. You know, he usually bails on the midweek ones or the Friday show or whatever, the extra ones. But he's here for the the pillars, like the main uh, building blocks of this podcast. <clears throat> and yet here we are on a Thursday, no Steve. But that does mean we get the great Brad Spielberger uh, a day early uh, to talk through this weekend's games. How's it going, Brad? Going great. Yeah, I think Steve is probably mourning the end of the Patriots dynasty. I know he mm. claims he's like only a Tom Brady fan, but you can't be a Tom Brady fan and not also be a closeted Patriots fan. So I think he's just he's he's in mourning, and I'm sending Steve my best wishes. You would think so, absolutely. Um, so he's going to get his way through this week of solo parenting with multiple kids under the age of whatever they are seven. Absolute nightmare from the sounds of it. And we're going to muddle through uh, this week's games. Um, but before we do that. We've got to talk about uh, insuring yourself with insuring your life. Insur- life insurance, I believe, is how they, they call it, the technical term. Uh, it's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is a perfect time to get it done. So you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Um, all right, we're not going to talk about the uh, the coaching craziness, the Bill Belichick and the Patriots parting of ways, the Pete Carroll and the Seahawks, Mike Vrabel getting fired. Um, we'll do that tomorrow on Friday's show. So if you guys want to hear us, you know, talk about that in a specific way, what the what the angle you want to hear us address is, fire in emails to nflpodcast at pff.com, and we'll get to all that tomorrow. But today's the preview show. So let's go in uh, chronological order as these things are going to appear over the course of the weekend. That takes us to Saturday at 4.30 p.m. The Cleveland Browns, the Joe Flacco-led Cleveland Browns, travel to Houston to take on the Texans and, of course, PFF Bobby. So what is your uh, opening take on this game, Brad? Yeah, I think initially when I looked at this spread, it comes out as a field goal around or two and a half, maybe Cleveland minus two and a half, that is. And I said, oh, the better quarterback in this game is getting points. Uh, Flacco journey has been fun. He's been putting up a ton of volume. He's also throwing about five turnover worthy passes a game. That's a bit high, but but that's my, my eye test told me that. But you dive into the numbers a little bit. 
This is not a good matchup for the Houston Texans. And, and I say that because C.J. Stroud has our third best passing grade against zone, 26th against man. And the Cleveland Browns lead us in man coverage on the season. And then the big knock on Stroud all along. And he has been better. He was great against Georgia. He's been great this year. Even against Indy, there were a couple plays. But when pressured versus clean, he's also a different quarterback. Yes, every quarterback is different. But, you know, it's, it's the one kind of thorn in his side. And obviously the Browns have an elite front four to get home without blitzing. So I don't love this matchup for Houston uh, all that much. Yeah, it, it is an interesting one. It's one of those weird games where um, they have met already this season, which doesn't always happen. Obviously, you get the divisional matchups, but a non-divisional matchup where they have uh, met each other so far this season. But um, it was without C.J. Stroud. It was when Stroud was down with that concussion, so he he didn't play in this game. And so I don't know how much it means. You know, we saw elements of what we're going to be talking about here you know miles garrett laramie tunsil is an incredible one-on-one matchup we saw the kind of impact that the browns defense and the browns pass rush can have but we also saw davis mills and case keenum not cj stroud dealing with it and while cj stroud has definitely struggled under pressure at times like that's been the weakest area of what has been a fairly flawless rookie season for him um He's still been pretty good, and I think he still gives you a way better chance to do anything in those circumstances than either Davis Mills or Case Keenum does. So it's a totally different dynamic, I think, than it was the first time around. No, absolutely, and and I could be wrong, but I think Nico Collins also didn't play in that that Browns game. I know they missed one game together, and then I think Nico came back for the the second game that Stroud missed. I could be no, he played in that analysis. He played in the first game. um, yeah, yeah. So, and obviously he is their clear-cut number one. I mean, basically it was playing by himself uh, in the Colts game, and that was all Stroud needed. So the, the other element here is, you mentioned, Stroud can can do more for them than most quarterbacks, has been great for sure. And it, we love our guy PFF Bobby, but the run-run-pass series is, which has, he leads the NFL, it did it a million times against the Colts. That game, frankly, should have been a blowout, not a one-score scary game. If he does that against Cleveland, this run defense that is top five in the NFL against the run in a bunch of different metrics, uh, but particularly success rate. So they do give up some explosives, but on a down-to-down basis, they're very stout. If you're putting Stroud in second and nine, third and nine situations, just makes things all the more difficult. Yeah, I, I was going through some Miles Garrett tape yesterday, um, and what actually jumped out to me was not like the pass rushing stuff we know he's incredible at, like best pass rush win rate literally we've ever seen the best in 17 years or whatever some of his plays against the run are just ridiculous like he has he has a play against Trent Williams where he gets inside him works across a shade to get inside his block and is in the backfield making a tackle on Christian McCaffrey I think before Trent Williams can like get out of his stance to to make the block you know like that's the best run blocking tackle in the NFL and he just made him look like a like a like a stooge like a guy that doesn't belong at this level that's how freaky miles garrett is like he probably doesn't get enough um recognition for his impact in the run game certainly like recently i don't know if he's always been at that level i think it, it it's certainly always been the weaker area of his game relative to the pass rushing but his run defense this year i think has been way better than it normally is and he's making a big impact in the run game for them is huge no for sure because obviously you know cleveland's going to try to run the ball a bunch early houston is right now second in the nfl in epa per rush and success rate so i was just talking about how good cleveland is houston statistically is actually even better uh, against the run in particular although 
pretty interesting. Their entire front four did not practice on Tuesday. I missed yeah. the Wednesday report, but every single guy, Anderson, Greenard, Rankins, and Collins did not practice on Tuesday. I'm sure they're all going to play. Maybe Greenard's the real big question mark, and he is a really good run-defending edge. But you mentioned the Tunsil matchup, too. I think we are going to see a lot of Miles Garrett, you know, mugging the A-gap, maybe doing some Allen Iverson crossovers. Um, but no, but, but truly just lining up on the inside. I, I bet we'll get some Zedarius Smith on the inside as well. Attacking that interior offensive line, which has had some injuries, some guys shuffling around at center and left guard in particular. Obviously, Shaq Mason's a good player at right guard. Um, that That is the weak spot, and maybe they try to get Garrett away from Tunsil as much as they can. The other... Um variable in this game relative to the last time is this was by far the best game Joe Flacco played um like this was where he had the 91.5 overall PFF grade four big time throws only had one turnover worthy play one mistake um an average depth of target of like 12 yards this was the game where Flacco just couldn't miss just did everything right averaged 8.8 yards per attempt insane performance from Joe Flacco um I don't know if that's a, a reflection of, for some reason, Flacco liked something about that Houston defense, or if he just caught lightning in a bottle the most in that one game, and the chances are that's not happening twice. Uh, what do you make of the whole? What do you make of the whole Joe Flacco thing up until now? And then what is it going to look like in the playoffs? Because there's all these kinds of weird, like obviously Flacco has form in terms of the guy's gone on playoff runs before that didn't necessarily reflect like what he was as an overall player. He's also got a ridiculously good record in the wild card. He's never lost in the wild card round. He's five and zero, oh, which is, it's better than like a whole list of, you know, hall of fame type quarterbacks. Now, part of that is they didn't play in the wild card round. They played in the divisional round. They had buys, but like Flacco's five and zero oh in in the wild card round and has rescued this Cleveland season. What do we expect? Yeah, at a certain point, you have enough of a sample. I mean, his his playoff run to the Super Bowl is one of the greatest runs we've ever seen. Like I think all the jokes he made about Joe Flacco is he elite, yada yada yada. That stretch was all time. You know, it's interesting that he played so well against his Houston defense because you'd think, especially with that high average depth of target, you know, they're going to sit back in a lot of zone, single high or two high. They they move, they rotate coverage. They do a lot of things on the back end, but they don't play a whole lot of man. It's a ton of zone coverage, and you think just keep guys in front of you, um, then maybe force Flacco to check the ball down a bunch, make him eventually make a mistake because he has to kind of dink and dunk his way down the field as opposed to just uncorking it downfield to Amari Cooper and hitting all these explosive splash plays. So I think it is interesting he did so well in that game. On that note, by the way, Amari Cooper also didn't practice uh, dealing with a heel, but he's been kind of dealing with stuff all year, and, and yeah. I'm sure he'll play. Uh, and Cedric Tillman, the rookie, who is kind of a jump ball downfield threat as well, has supplanted Donovan Peoples-Jones in that role the last two months of the year. Um, you know, he, he also did miss the practice with a concussion. That one I'm kind of more unsure about. But, yeah, I, I imagine they'll adjust. They'll switch things. And, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Will and did Will Anderson play in the first uh, Browns-Texans game either? He missed time at the end of the year too, so – um, there could be so many personnel differences despite these teams playing so recently. Uh, yeah, Will Anderson did not play in that first game. So that's, but um, the Browns were at that point already down to like their third-string offensive tackles. Like their, their tackle duo in that game was Jerron Christian at left tackle, James uh, Hudson at right tackle, and those guys did get exposed in that game. 
Uh, each one of them gave up at least five pressures. Each one of them had a pass blocking grade in the 40s and the low 40s of that. So it's not like, you know, they had just reached the end of the sort of time where they had good pass blocking on the edges. Flacco was under pressure. That was just a game where he just kept dropping back and heaving it to Amari Cooper, who went for like 265 or whatever it was and looked like he was going to break the single game record for a period. Um, it just, whenever you get a game that's sort of that, outlier in terms of crazy production crazy you know stats for one guy it feels like that's just a weird thing that happened that one time and it's probably not happening again like I can't see a way the Browns roll in there and Amari Cooper has 200 again because you know the Houston like the same game plan works Joe Flacco just drops back blindly throws it at Amari Cooper who goes off for 200 again and the Texans are like what the hell how do we get wrecked by this two weeks or two games in a row against this team it's going to be a different game, and any form of different game, I think, swings in Houston's direction. I would agree with you there. Yeah, no, I got a shout-out. My Probably my favorite stat of the year because it is tied to Joe Flacco, which is perfectly fitting. That was the most completed air yards in a game we've ever charted. Like, really? Amari Cooper, I think, had 211, I think it was, of the 265 yards came through the air. He had, like, 50 yards after the catch. Uh, and including, like, you know, Calvin Johnson, 300-yard game, he had fewer air yards. Yeah, so um, a perfectly fitting Joe Flacco stat line. But, um, but yeah, no, I agree with you. Like, I think you look at more outcomes and more ways this game could get played out. I certainly think they do lean Houston, not just because of the personnel, but that is obviously massive. Um, but, but I will say at the same time, like, I don't love the matchup going both directions. So maybe I'm thinking there's going to be fewer points here. It's the total of 44.5 on DraftKings. Maybe that's the way it, it gets a little bit uglier. It's a little bit lower scoring, more methodical, and less of, you know, fireworks. The Flacco thing just fascinates me because – I, it sort of feels like we've been the, the the results have been incredible, but we're like we're waiting for the implosion, right? Like the he had two games with the Jets that looked a bit like this, and then the next game was like one of the worst games anybody's had in the last five years it was an absolute disaster. And they're like, all right, that's enough of that. Time to go to somebody else. He hasn't had that game yet for for Cleveland, and I don't know if he's ever going to have it or if it's right around the corner. And this is the week you get that Flacco game, but equally. Like, if he does do that run again, the, the la- like, repeats the run he, he made the first time around to win the Super Bowl, he's had the same career as Eli Manning. Like, Eli Manning's Hall of Fame career is based off two postseason runs to a Super Bowl. The rest of it is, like, a career of mid, right? He had just an average quarterback for an entire career and then had two postseason runs that were two of the greatest postseason runs of any quarterback in NFL history – that's his, his Hall of Fame case. And I actually think it's a reasonable one. Like, take, give me an average quarterback and then do two spectacular things that change the game, um, you know, for, for like postseason legacy. I, I have time for the idea that that, is a super, uh, that that is a Hall of Fame case. If Flacco does it this year, it's the same career. It's, it's also a Hall of Fame case. Like, and again, the is Flacco elite thing? He's never been elite except for that run of like five games. But if he does that twice... That might be a Hall of Fame career. It's a good point. I mean, it really, really is. Two rings with two, in theory, great playoff runs. And you're talking about two. You could say, you know, down a bunch of tackles, really one consistently reliable receiver. And Joku's obviously been awesome. I guess also Flacco kind of has untapped, I think, a little bit of David and Joku. But, yeah, like, it wouldn't be us sitting here saying, yeah, he's on this, like, 
mean, it is a good team. It is. But, you know, it's not so incredibly elite around him that we would make all these excuses for him. Um, he's still elevating things. He's been good off play action. Uh, the screen game from Stefanski has been great, uh, in particular with Flacco and, and kind of just uh, getting pass rushers tired out. I think you noticed that, too, in second halves of games. They let pass rushers upfield, get rid of the ball. And that's how he throw, threw for 200-plus in the fourth quarter against Chicago. Those guys were gassed because they were, they were like, getting upfield so often. At least that's what I, what I saw on tape in that one. So, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. I think he would have a legit resume. Two rings, longevity, the, the volume stats would probably be there, I assume. Um, I think we, we'd be leading the charge. Joe Flacco to the Hall of Fame. Nice. That's a, the, we're exactly the campaign leaders that Joe Flacco needs to get into the Hall of Fame. All right, this show is brought to you by Price Picks, which means Eli is going back to the well. Now, this time, he is leaning in to his recent success, quote-unquote, in, uh, in, in flex plays, right? He's been, he's been let down by one guy pretty much every single time he's done this. So he's decided that's a flex play win, so let's lean into the flex play. If you get three out of five right in your entry, um, you win. Right, And if you get four out of five right, you win double your money. If you get five right, all five, you get 10x your money. So Eli's prize pick selection, Jared Goff to go for more than 264 and a half passing yards. Puka Nakua to go for more than 78 and a half receiving yards. Travis Kelsey for more than 61 and a half receiving yards. Jake Elliott for more than one and a half field goals made. And CJ Stroud, quarterback that we just talked about for the Texans, to go for more than 256 and a half passing yards. So the man is still leaning into his optimism despite falling at every single hurdle so far. Um, anyway, Price Picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America. The easiest and most exciting way to play DFS. It's just you and Eli against the numbers. Pick more, pick less, it's that easy. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. In addition to playing alongside Eli, you can play alongside some of Price Picks' favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz. You can find them in the community plays under the Promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in the Price Picks community each week. Price Picks even offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you have a player that exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Price Picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. Go to pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. That's pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Um, pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Price Picks. Let's, let's, uh, fingers crossed for Eli, you know? would be nice. It would be nice if it came good in the playoffs just the one time now that he's uh, leaning in to the flex play wins. Okay, next game chronologically. That brings us to Saturday night, 8 p.m., the Miami Dolphins against the Kansas City Chiefs headed to Arrowhead, the fair weather Miami Dolphins in what is being labeled as one of the coldest games in NFL history according to the current weather forecast. Uh, we have it as 7 degrees Fahrenheit, as opposed to you know Celsius, which would be chilly, but not you're, you're, you're going to lose bit digits and stuff if you don't wrap up. So, all right, is that do we even need to go any further? Is that it? Game done. Miami can't play in seven degrees. We're out of here, right? 
Definitely doesn't help. I mean, I guess I will say, you know, Tyreek Hill has as much experience catching passes in that cold as anybody else, uh, you know, on the Chiefs roster. Actually, more so than anyone besides Travis right. Kelsey. So, you know, they can battle through it. These guys didn't all go to college in Miami just because they play for Miami. It definitely does not help, though. Um, and on the Tyreek Hill front, too, he's talked on his own show about the the volume in, in an opposing stadium making it harder for them to operate uh, their offense with all the timing and communication and everything that's involved with the pre-snap motion. Building's going to be rocking, and it's going to be freezing, and the Dolphins have had the worst rash of injuries over the last six weeks of any team in the NFL by probably a comfortable margin. You look at this Chiefs team, and the tackles are exploitable while the Dolphins are down four edge rushers. You know, love Melvin Ingram. Emmanuel Agba's the best fifth edge rusher on an NFL roster, uh, but maybe ever. But but it's still just not as good as it could have been. I'm not going to say it's over, but I I don't like the spot for the Dolphins. Uh, no question. Yeah, they did. They they signed Justin Houston as well, right? They're like running back. They're, they're like constructing a 2014 pass rushing team right now because there's just nobody left healthy, and they're trying desperately to get any kind of impact. Now, I mean, it's not dumb. Like those guys might have some juice for one game. You know, if you're like, hey, I need 25 snaps from you, lay it all on the line. This is it. You know, like it might work, particularly against. Kansas City's offensive tackles, which have been a problem all season long, it's an area they they could potentially target. But yeah, they are they're pretty deep into the depth chart at this point. Um, like losing really significant players late in the season and are trying desperately to patch it up with just street free agents or veterans that are on their last legs, running on fumes. You know who knows how that's going to work. Yeah, it's going to be tough. True, I forgot JPP as well. They have a legitimate Pro Bowl caliber 2015 edge group. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, which, no, like you said, I mean, hey, these guys had, like Ingram and Houston in particular have still had juice, you know, playing 400 snaps a year the last couple of seasons. So, you know, uh, the Waddle thing's interesting to me too. You know, he's dealing with the high ankle sprain. I know he was close to playing or they list him as questionable for the Week 18 game. Obviously did not go, and maybe he goes, but he's a guy where almost the entire season he's off the field for a series or two dealing with some sort of soft tissue ailment or another. And as great as Tyreek Hill is, in this first matchup in Germany, you saw, all right, we're going to put a corner up at the line, bump him off his route, not let him get comfortable or get quick separation and find a void, and then we're going to have safety help over the top in case he does you know, just blow by whoever the corner is. I just think they're going to play them well, and it's just, yeah, I just don't love it for Miami. And, you know, Kansas City's had their issues. They've had their struggles, but no Xavier Howard, it sounds like, for Miami too, so that'll help. It's just it's just not lining up very nicely for the Dolphins. Yeah, I mean, absolute minimum, Kansas City knows what the best strategy to try and take away Tyreek Hill should be, you know? Like, whether or not you can execute it is another matter, but they know how you should be trying to approach him because they had him for so long. One, I, I did want to mention one tweet from Will Blackman um, that I think is, is good with the weather. Uh, Will Blackman tweets, As a Rhode Island native, as a Boston College alum and former Green Bay Packer, I'm here to tell you cold weather teams don't like playing in the cold weather either. Like, we all look at this and say, oh, this is a Miami problem. They're screwed. The Chiefs are fine. Nobody likes playing when it's seven degrees outside. Nobody. And there, there are absolute psychopaths that are right there with, you know, no sleeves and stuff being like, yeah, this is great. Nobody likes playing when it's seven degrees outside. Now, maybe it affects Miami more than it's going to affect Kansas City. But like that is whether everybody is going to find awful. Yeah, unless you're like a corn-fed Iowa offensive lineman that you said, like goes out shirtless and, and just, you know, is trying to show that the weather is, you know, they're impermeable to the conditions. You probably hate it. Like I said, though, like 
like Kadarius Tony played college football at Florida. He's not he's not any more comfortable in in zero degrees than right. a you know receiver uh, in um in Miami. So yeah, no, it's it seems interesting how that impacts the game. I think is interesting too because the Chiefs have been quietly very bad against the run. It's a very good defense, but they are one of the worst run defenses in the NFL from an efficiency standpoint. And maybe part of that is they're so predicated and focused on taking away the pass that they're a little bit more deficient there. But it's still worth noting Robert Hunt came back and will be back at right guard uh, for Miami, which is huge. Might be the best offensive lineman on the team, even with Teron Armstead back in the fold. I think you probably could say that. So there are some things skewing maybe perhaps their direction with the run game. You know, Mostert and A-Chan should both go in this one. But, yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting. Rematches are always fun. I guess we have two, yeah. we have two rematches now uh, through the first two games. Yeah, I, I really think that Miami run game is a big piece of the puzzle here. I, I mean, I think it is for Kansas City as well, but I think we have a higher degree of sort of certainty of what that looks like. Like Isaiah Pacheco has been a big part of that offense when it has looked halfway decent. It's just been him powering through um, defenses and and trying to do it by will, by force of will alone. Miami's offense, though, uh, the first time they played, you know, way back in whatever it was, week nine, that was without Devin Achan. And Achan looks like he's just going to average eight yards a carry for his career. It's like Jamal Charles on steroids. And like Wig Martindale, I don't mean he's on steroids. I just mean, you know, metaphorically. Um, but they didn't have him the first time around. Raheem Mostert was held relatively in check, but only because they – the game flow went away from them and they stopped using him. I mean, he averaged seven yards per carry in that game and they only gave him 12 attempts. Like, if they lean into the run game, if the game doesn't, if they don't get behind early in a big way, Miami leaning on that run game of, of Mostert and HN could be a, a real way of maybe offsetting any kind of issues they might have in the pass game, whether it's Tyree Kill getting disrupted or whether it's simply Tua throwing in that, you know, seven degree weather. Yeah, it was 21 nothing at the end of the half, and they did just kind of abandon it. But, yeah, yeah Devon Achan averaged the most yards per carry for a running back with 100-plus attempts in the history of the league. Uh, you know, so he's pretty good. Um, and the Chiefs, yeah, allowed the fewest plays of 20-plus yards in the NFL this year. They're not really susceptible to these explosives. In, in particular, they're good gang tacklers. They do not let guys shake out, uh, you know, get a ton of yards after the catch or after contact. So... If you need to run the ball and, and have these methodical 12-play drives uh, as opposed to hitting those shot plays, the run game's going to be a big part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the injury report-wise, uh, you mentioned Xavier Howard before. Javon Holland also looks pretty iffy. I think those are the two biggest concerns from either side, uh, which for Miami is big, right? I mean, that's two significant parts of your secondary are potentially uh, at least doubtful heading into this game. And for Kansas City, the story has been the same all year long, and it's been exactly the same. Whether it's week one, whether it's the, the right now heading into this game, can wide receivers simply stop making mistakes? And it's not even wide receivers alone. It's tight ends, it's offensive line. Even Mahomes joined the party at various points in the season. Can this offense simply get out of its own way and have a relatively clean game? Yep, and the last note there you mentioned Jerome Baker, off-ball linebacker, also not playing. The Lions, uh, the Dolphins are 31st in the league in EPA per dropback and success rate to targets to tight ends. Uh, Travis Kelsey sat out week 18, tried to get healthy, maybe hung out with T. Swift at the Grammys or whatever he was doing. Um, but it's a nightmarish matchup. So yeah, the receivers have been a problem. Maybe you get some Jalen Ramsey on Kelsey, so that that could complicate matters. But they have struggled against that position all year long. And like you said, a lot of times it's just Kansas City getting in their own way. 
Vic's going to have a plan. Vic, Vic Fangio, he's going to dial some stuff up. He'll keep things in front of him, um, you know, I'm sure. And, and if if Mahomes tries to, you know, take too many shots, he might pick him off a, t- a time or two. But um, I, I don't love this matchup on that side of the ball either. I think Kelsey is going to have yet another big playoff game, which go look at his playoff stats, folks. He's, he's pretty good come, uh, come January. Did you see the quotes from Andy Reid on Travis Kelsey sitting out that game? Um, there were ones that I saw, like the – I saw the – like the tweet version and never clicked in to find out what the full kind of transcript was. But the tweet I saw said that that was Travis Kelsey's call, not like the team didn't decide to sit him down. Like Travis Kelsey was like, I'm going to sit out this game. That's cool. Just a little weird. It is weird. I I feel like there was a time where in the last couple of years where he played in week 18 and got dinged up. And, and it may not have mattered. They may have gone on to win the Super Bowl in, in one of those years or make a championship game, whatever. But I, I could be making that that story up in my head. But, yeah, you know what? Look, he's an older guy. I think he has looked a touch slower this year. Um, you know, he started the year, obviously, with with a knee injury or, or whatever that was in week one against Detroit. Mm. That is interesting. Because um, did they have something to play for? Maybe the two seed instead of the three? I, I don't know. I I, uh, I found it strange. I, I found it strange that Andy Reid, like th- this was apparently Andy Reid saying this, right? So yeah. like a head coach is sort of deliberately volunteering the information that Travis Kelsey was the one that made that call. Whether or not there was any like implication there, it's just still slightly strange to me that a guy volunteered that information, right? Like it would yeah. have been, even if it... Even if he did, like even if it was his call, it seems more likely that Andy Reid would say, you know, team decision, whatever, nothing there, rather than saying, no, that was that was Travis's call. Just I don't know. It just weird. struck me as strange, and I, and I I don't know why I'm even bringing it up. I didn't click into the article. I didn't see his full comments, so I'm just I'm just highlighting that it it feels strange to me without really having any point to make at the end of that. Sure. Spreading some misinformation. Why yeah. not? Absolutely. Well, not not a misinformation. Simply, you know, incomplete information. Right. Sure. Go go do your own research. It's worked out so sure. well for others. Uh, it is weird though that Travis Kelsey he doesn't have a game with more than ten targets since week seven, um, and that's one element. You know, early in the year there were a few games in there where you're like, why why do teams still let Travis Kelsey win after win after win after win? You know, well part of the reason is because it is, it is kind of death by a thousand paper cuts. It's still better than putting three guys on him and then letting the one deep target go over the top. And, you know, that's a whole drive's worth of plays right there. But it kind of feels like either they figured out what the balance is and actually there's a way of taking him away without opening those up or with all the mistakes the other Chiefs receivers are making, they're like, you know what? It is actually better to take away Travis Kelsey and dare them to beat you with anybody else because nobody is. And because Rasheed is also the same thing, right? He's he's right. also a death by a thousand paper cuts underneath fine soft spots and zones, and he's great after the catch. Probably at this point, better after the catch than Kelsey. But yeah, it's still not going to be some sixty yard bomb over over the top of your head. It's going to be a seven yard route, and then he might add ten on top of that. So yeah, it's an interesting point. Maybe him his evolution can help Kelsey get some space though too. But yeah, they both operate middle of the field, intermediate part of the field. That's that's kind of where they eat. I forgot with uh, with no Steve on the show, this whole thing's going to going off the rails. But we need to pick the games. Um, Steve's picks are actually in. So Houston, Steve is picking Houston to cover the two and a half point spread. Uh, hmm. I am buying into Joe Flacco magic, so I will go with the Browns. We will uh, we'll track your results this week, Brad. So where are you going? Love it. Browns two and a half, and I will go uh, minus two and Browns minus two and a half. And here I'll go. I'll lay the points with Kansas City. 
Okay, so you're picking Cleveland with the points and then Kansas City, they're a four and a half point favorite at home. You are taking the Chiefs with that. Ugh. I will also pick the Chiefs to finally get out of their own way and win with and cover a four and a half point spread. Um, all right, let's move on to the next game. Sunday, Sunday at 1 p.m. Uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers against the Buffalo Bills. This is the largest spread of the week, as makes sense given the two teams involved. But it kind of illustrates that Vegas, you know, the man in Vegas is buying back into the Bills. Like we made this point coming out of Monday that, okay, it's been a roller coaster ride and it, it was, I mean, they were heading into last weekend with the chance they might not make the playoffs at all and end up with, you know, end up looking like a, end up looking exactly where you think they should have looked heading into the season, right? If you just snapshotted preseason to now and looked at the standings, you'd be like, yeah, that makes perfect sense without knowing how we got here. It, it, it was a wild ride, but it seems like everyone is sort of back on board with the idea that, yeah, Buffalo is still one of the best teams in the AFC and absolutely a live contender for the Super Bowl. Yeah, and the spread is interesting to me because, I mean, look, Pittsburgh is probably viewed by Vegas and many others as the worst playoff team in the field. But this is a game, we talk about the cold weather in Kansas City. It might not be as cold, but the wind, which really impacts football games more than temperatures, is disastrous in Buffalo. 15 mile an hour sustained, gusts to 30 or 30 plus miles per hour. Um, that's about the total you're looking at is 35 and a half. I see on the ticker there. So we have a total in the mid-30s. And snow. And you have that weather condition. Right, right. And it's still a 10-point spread. It, it says a whole lot uh, about, you know, the, the valuation of these two teams. Yeah. It, I mean, this is the this is essentially with the weather report and the, the lines. Vegas is effectively saying that, like, Buffalo is going to put up a couple of touchdowns and Pittsburgh might not score. <laughs> That's what we're looking at for this game. Yeah, yeah, no, I guess so. They're, they're thinking it's going to be an ugly one, but somehow Buffalo still covers the spread there. So, you know, I thought the most interesting thing I wanted to pull up for this game and look into, and stuff like this is never clean, but obviously the big storyline from an injury standpoint is, of course, the absence of T.J. Watt. Yeah. We have a robust sample from just one season ago. And look, Pittsburgh has obviously added Keanu Benton, add Nick Herbig. I think Marcus Golden may not have been there last year either. So it's a different team, but... You look at T.J. Watt and non-T.J. Watt Steelers stats in 2022. The big one for me, the Steelers without T.J. Watt last year were third in the NFL in blitz rate at 42%. Um, with T.J. Watt, they were 12th at 30%. And as we talk, I'm sure you guys have talked about on the show, Josh Allen was third in the NFL this year in, in passing grade against the Blitz. He was sixth last year. It's not a stable stat, really, but he's so good at it that he kind of has bucked that trend, and I think three of the last four years has been top ten against the Blitz. So do they Blitz more without T.J. Watt? Does it expose a secondary that is just decimated with injury um, and, and cause even more problems? Can they get home with four comfortably with, you know, Herbig, I think, and Golden probably rotating in for TJ Watt? But but that's the big one for me. Is I mean it's it's a massive, massive loss, um, you know, on the edge. Yeah, the the on-off splits for any individual player are always extremely noisy and it's it's very difficult to figure out if they're real or if they're just it just happens that way. But the on-off splits for TJ Watt are wild for the for the Steelers. Um I do think that they are better equipped now. Than they have ever been to survive, you know, on to survive off splits effectively with TJ Watt with him out of the game. Number one, the players you mentioned that they brought in that weren't there previously, um, Nick Herbig in particular, that guy, 
and he's from from what side? What made him such an interesting draft pick is his side of the line splits in college were insane, and in preseason they were the same as well. Like from from what side of the line, rushing off the left side, Herbig seems to have this like way better ability to turn the corner and run that arc, um, and his production was off the charts. From the other side, it was like nowhere in near the same ballpark. So when they draft him, you're like, well. What plays there? I mean, he's barely going to feature, right? But now, obviously, there's an opportunity for him to basically play the whole game coming off that side, and that is where he's at his best. Number two, Alex Highsmith, I think, is having a career year on the other side. Like, he has developed into, I mean, he's not TJ Watt, but he's the next tier down. He's become a really impactful player in his own right, plus the players that they've added in the middle. So, yeah, obviously, not having TJ Watt is a massive loss for them. Um, But... I do think they're better equipped to deal with that now than they have been in the past and probably isn't going to be the difference between winning and losing the game for them. Like, I think they can still get some pressure on Josh Allen and try and force him into mistakes. Now, number one, Herbig is not going to have the same sort of game-changing play knack that TJ Watt has. Number two, he's probably also not going to have just the basic, like, gap discipline that TJ Watt does. Like, Josh Allen forces you to be careful with how you're running you can't just go recklessly crazily i'm gonna i'm gonna turn this corner come what may you've got to bear in mind the guy that's back there and what he's capable of doing on any given play that is a concern as well no doubt about it no it's a huge huge point and on the, on the positive side they do get back both starting safeties it looks like demonte kazee from suspension and i believe minka fitzpatrick will go um you know from injury and obviously you know the way they win this game is turning the ball over getting josh allen to throw up some you know some prayers and and those safeties in theory making some plays on the ball so it is a good point, though, on the gap soundness because, you know, I think Alain and Roberts will be back, but they've had a patchwork at linebacker. I mean, guys are picking up off the street throughout the year. Michael Walker's kind of their coverage, uh, you know, backer now. Uh, Mark Robinson actually thought played pretty well in that Ravens game. It's just a patchwork, but but Mike Tomlin has found a way to make it work, as always. But, yeah, no, I, that does concern me. If, if they do bring pressure because they feel they need to, Josh Allen's going to have some 30, 40-yard scrambles, you know, mixed in there. Yeah, there is still that element with that Steelers, the back seven. I mean, the last few weeks, you're like, this this should not work. I mean, <laughs> this personnel group that's playing right now can't play at this level together and have any kind of competent defensive output. And yet it has been. Like, somehow they've been patching that together and it's been doing well outside of a couple of plays here or there. Does that continue into the playoffs against, you know, better competition, a Josh Allen, all the, you know, Stephon Diggs, all the things the Bills can bring to the table – or did they just somehow keep it together for a couple of weeks and actually there's only so long you can play with that kind of personnel on the back end before you're exposed for the fact that that is not an NFL caliber group of back seven coverage personnel. And I think the thing there was to mix. So it was part the opponents they were playing, but then part, I think they had phenomenal matchups because like Seattle, for example, you go look at the stretch of the last month, Seattle's okay. This is a good passing offense. They've been, you know, top ten in any paper dropback. All these things, but they've had injuries at tackle, and they've had some shaky play from these sophomore tackles. And T.J. Watt and Alex Highsmith were literally in Geno Smith's lap after two seconds on half of his dropbacks, and he actually still found a way to be fairly productive. So, like that was also. You know, if your front four is that good um, and can get home again without blitzing too often, you can probably mask up a lot of those issues. But now that you can't really do that, and I love Alex Highsmith too. I think he has so much 
I mean, a deep, deep bag of tricks. He can do so many different things. His inside counter, his spin move, everything he does, um, I think has been more and more refined. And I know he's is a great anti-TJ Watt thing. His sack little came down. He was a better player this year. I think it was clear. Um, but I didn't say not anti-Watt, but different than Watt. You know, for, for whatever reason, I'll, I'll throw that in there. Um, but, yeah, so, like, they can still get home. I mean, Cam Hayward looked more like Cam Hayward in Week 18 and 17 as well. I love Keanu Benton. I just think long long response short, like Josh Allen's going to expose the secondary issues like other quarterbacks couldn't really do. Yeah, the the other fascinating part about this is both run games for these two teams have really come on in recent weeks. I mean, the last few weeks for the Steelers have looked like they wanted it to look all season long, right? Najee Harris has actually looked pretty good, and he's he's an injury concern coming into the game. Um, Jalen Warren has been the sort of you know explosive uh, complement to Najee Harris, but those two have been a really good thunder and lightning comp, uh, combination over the last couple of weeks. And then the later in the year we got, it seemed like the more James Cook was the featured part of that Bills offense, and obviously Josh Allen is is always going to be the key player in the group but like James Cook and the run game for Buffalo has been really working as well so which one of those run games is going to have most success in this game as well and that's huge you know so get back to the wind that is a massive massive point um we were looking at that a little bit earlier in the week the um the bills are susceptible up the middle running between the tackles uh they're like 26 in EPA per rush between the tackles you know Ed Oliver has been a really good player this year I think part of his game against the run in particular is he won gaps, he gets upfield very quickly, he's either getting a tackle for loss or he might be exposing a gap and letting guys get behind him. So I do think, you know, Najee in this inside zone gap scheme running uh, situation, if he is healthy and obviously Warren's a great player too, they could be successful uh, on the ground. They really could. And, and obviously, you no know, Matt Milano, the young linebackers have gotten better in Buffalo. There's no question about that, in particular Terrell Bernard. But but yeah, if it gets in an ugly ground-and-pound style game, I, Pittsburgh has a path here to at least keeping it closer than we expect because, I mean, look, Buffalo hasn't been blowing teams out for a while now. Yeah, and one last element I think that's, that's worth bringing up, who knows if it'll matter given the weather report and given you know the fact that passing might not be a huge element anyway – but Buffalo secondary, which has been beat up, you know, all season long, they patched it back up. They brought in some additions, players like Razul Douglas. Um, well, Douglas and Taylor Rapp are both, they both didn't practice this week. They're both big question marks um, or missing pieces potentially from that secondary. Razul Douglas has been playing lights out since he arrived in Buffalo. Like he, he's been an interesting player to add because he's so good at like covering the first thing. You know, he's really aggressive, really dives on that first move, um, maybe is susceptible to double moves or anything that's got some misdirection in there. But so far, it hasn't been a problem for Buffalo. If they're without him, I think that changes some things on the back end, particularly with Pittsburgh leaning on George Pickens at times. You know, if they have a game where they're force-feeding Pickens and Razul Douglas isn't there, that's a potential concern. But as we said, the weather report might mean it's just not a viable option anyway. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no question about it. I uh, Douglas, my, I think, gotta say, probably just impacting twenty twenty three alone was the move of the deadline. I mean, he's been phenomenal for, for the Bills. Um, I guess I don't know, I'm out of points. I'm jumping in. I'll take give me give me the points with the Steelers. Some Mike Tomlin voodoo magic. I think they lose, but I, I think they cover. Yeah, I'm with you. Steve is taking the Bills despite the ten points. I don't know if Steve checked the weather report. So yeah, that might be part of it. But I, I mean, look, it's been better recently for. Um, for Buffalo, but it's still not been great. I mean, I'm not, I'm not buying into the idea that 
Buffalo runs over anybody to the tune of 10 points, even if it is Pittsburgh. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the Bills win, but I don't think they're going to do it by double digits. And it might be a fairly close, ugly affair um, because of that weather report. Um, all right. Our, uh, our next sponsor on the show, our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it <clears throat> every single day. Um, I gave it a choice because, look, I don't have the best diet in the world. And frankly, I was tired of trying various different supplements, whether it's a tablet here, whether it's a sachet or something there, to try and, you know, overcome the fact that my diet is not great. Tired of taking so many supplements, wanted one single solution that supports everything and covers my nutritional bases every single day. You get better gut health, you get a boost in energy, immune system report, uh, support, basically everything you want in one single supplement. I drink AG1 in the mornings uh, before coffee, Get up, take the thing of AG1, little bit of water, grab your coffee, and now you're good to the day, good for the day. Um, makes you feel absolutely unstoppable, ready to go, like you're doing something good for your body instead of pumping it full of crappy food for the rest of the day, uh, covering all your, all your nutritional bases. Um, it's really just taking care of your body, and a huge part of that starts with optimizing whole body health. A lot of them, uh, a lot of athletes drink AG1. It's a big part of why I'm gave it a shot, why I'm a big fan. With every daily serving, you're setting yourself up for success with 75 high quality ingredients that give you key daily nutrients and support energy, focus, strength, and clarity. It's a micro habit that delivers macro benefits and helps just about everybody take care of their health, whether you're an athlete or not. Um, I also like the cost less than $3 a day. It's an effective daily habit with high quality sourced ingredients, win-win for everybody. It's a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine. Then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five eight free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash PFF. That's drinkag1 forward slash PFF. Check it out. Um, all right, what's our next game? We are... The 4.30 p.m. slot on Sunday. It's the Green Bay Packers against the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas favored by seven and a half. What's your take on this game? Yeah, interesting one here. we got the, the McCarthy revenge game, I suppose, against uh, Green Bay here. So this one's interesting for a bunch of different matchups. You know, I think obviously the Joe Barry defense has been maligned for much of the second half of the season. I don't love the, the uh, slot corners and safeties against CeeDee Lamb over the middle. But Terrence Steele has been the squeaky wheel on that Cowboys offensive line. I think our guy Tresh, someone at PFF, apologies, uh, put out that he accounts for the highest percent of a team's pressures of any offensive lineman in the NFL. And that is, you know, where Rashawn Gary is going to likely line up the most of his snaps is over Terrence Steele at right tackle. So that is interesting to me, but uh, I, I just struggle to see the, the Packers stopping this Cowboys offense much at all. On the flip side, Jordan Love's been awesome, been a revelation. Uh, against pressure is still his, and again, it sounds dumb saying this, every quarterback, yes, struggles against pressure, but his splits are really, really big there. And you know Dallas, third in the NFL, at getting home uh, with only four rushers. Uh, I just think they're going to be able to get a lot of consistent pressure without blitzing uh, and cause some problems for the Packers. Yeah, I mean, I think the key to this game is whether Green Bay's offense can keep Dallas out of those clear, you know, obvious pass rushing situations because the Cowboys still have the best pass rush in the NFL. Micah Parsons is an all-pro edge rusher. The guy is arguably the defensive player of the year. He's absolutely outstanding. And even in games where he's been quiet, it's not been because he had a bad game. It's been because circumstances essentially took him out of the game. It's like watching Aaron Donald, right? 
Aaron Donald doesn't have bad games. Aaron Donald simply has games where outside circumstance prevent him from impacting them, right? But in that, in those circumstances taking place, he is impacting the game because either you have to call a bunch of stuff that means Aaron Donald can't get to the passer or you have to assign like three guys to him at every single play. In either way, he is affecting the game even if he's not statistically or uh, individually directly impacting the quarterback. And I think that's, that's Micah Parsons right now is that he is affecting the game whether or not he's putting up stats or whether or not he's actually in the quarterback's lap every single play. But Green Bay needs to be able to run the ball. You know, Aaron Jones being back is a huge thing for them. Dude, he's so good when he's healthy. Um, A.J. Dillon is a question mark heading into this game. Honestly, I, I don't know if that's a bad thing for Green Bay. Like, the more they lean on Aaron Jones, honestly, the better, I think, for that offense. And then, you know, Jordan Love continuing the run that he's on. The weird thing about his splits, I said this on a, a Packers podcast with, with Andy Herman yesterday or during the week. Anyway, he's like squeezed the Josh Allen career development arc into like a year. Like one season, 17 games is he's gone from earlier in the year. It's like this is just college Jordan Love again. Like we've we've experienced no development on the bench, right? This is just the same guy from Utah State, which is wildly inconsistent, not accurate enough, all those kinds of things. And then it became inconsistent. Like we'd get games where he was on and there was something there and everyone started to like it. And that was like year two of Josh Allen where it was still – overall not great but everyone's like oh there's this guy's he's gonna be it like wait it's gonna click and then the last eight weeks or whatever we've got year three Josh Allen where he's just amazing like Jordan Love has become one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL over the last several weeks of the season I think from week nine onwards he's the second graded quarterback in the league he's barely put a foot wrong his adjusted completion rate his accuracy is shot through the roof He's shown incredible pocket presence, poise, all these kinds of things, and understanding of the defense. Like, there are some plays where it looks like just a sort of heave and a hope or whatever, but you can see he's read out what's happening, and he knows that he has the ability to just, like, drop it into an ocean of space over here because a guy is one-on-one with a safety running against his leverage, that kind of thing. So that's part of this, right, is I think Dallas is dealing with a different quarterback than they would have been earlier in the season and if the Packers offense like doesn't let the game get away from them, I think they can definitely kind of keep this Dallas defense out of their comfort zone and away from the area where they make the biggest difference. Yeah, and in particular on throws 20-plus yards downfield, the second half of the year is our third-highest-graded quarterback, and that was a disaster the first half of the season. Yeah. You mentioned the actual accuracy charting on a throw-by-throw basis wasn't good either, and that all has flipped. And I do think part of that, in, in, in hindsight and retrospect, is – you know, were there communication breakdowns with all of the rookie and second-year receivers? Were there elements that were kind of outside of his control, not fully vindicating him for everything? Um, there were some throws where he was just simply inaccurate. But, I mean, yeah, he's, he's launching off his back foot, off weird platforms, weird arm angles. He had a couple absolute rifles in the Bears game, but then also had a bunch of, like you said, kind of touch passes to an area. The A.J. Dillon thing is, is a funny point. I mean, they, they averaged 7.2 yards per play against Chicago, which is, like, that's a... I don't know, 90th percentile yards per play outcome in a single game. Um, it's very, very good. And it was because they, yeah, Aaron Jones can just break off these big gains, you know, check down, stuff like that, but also in the run game. And then, I mean, Jaden Reed's been a revelation for them too. He was awesome in that game. It's going to be tough. I, I do just wonder if we see, you know, some of the happy feet and some of those things combined with a much better pass rush unit uh, cause some problems. The other side of the ball, 
they're, they're also kind of strange because we had just reached the point where everyone was, was ready to fire Joe Barry, right? Defense has been terrible. It's not, it's, it's capitulating the worst possible times as well. Like we've seen enough, it's time to get rid of Joe Barry. And then he was like, oh, wow, if I don't pull out the good stuff, I'm going to get whacked. I better, I better dial up all the good plays. And the last two weeks have been, I think, Green Bay defense's best performance of the season. Now they've come against, you know, not a good Minnesota Vikings offense with their quarterback situation and the Chicago Bears who are better but still not exactly a top-tier group, right? It's a totally different ask expecting to do that against Dallas. But the fact that we have seen a dramatic jump in the the level of that defense, because they were getting lit up by bad offenses as well. So there was a change. It's not like it was just running up against two offenses that weren't necessarily going to stretch them. They've been playing way better. Like, can they do that to a Dallas offense that at home has been scintillating? I would have to look more at the splits, but the amount of twists and stunts and games they ran up front against Chicago in particular, it seemed like an, like more than normal for that defense. And Carl they have Brooks. a ton of talent there. I think Devontae Wyatt really has come along. I feel like no one's really talking about him. Um, you know, kind of a quiet first-round pick last year, but has been really, really good. Uh, for the, And then Lucas Van Ness, more of a cleanup guy, pursuit guy. But look, he, he plays the whistle on every single snap, and he will get guys chased into his lap um, You know, with the other talent they have. But that stuck out to me, and I think it could cause problems for you know Dallas. I think we'll get Tyler Smith back at left guard, but you know I mentioned Terrence Steele, Tyler, Tyler Biadash at center is is solid but unspectacular. Like they, they they have ways to attack this offensive line. I think that could be one key is just throwing a lot of different looks at them and just confusing the offensive line a little bit. Carl Brooks against Chicago had several plays where on those those inside twists that you were talking about, he took out the entire interior of the offensive line by himself multiple times, and he did it from both sides of the line. Like he he basically took a charge straight at the A gap between the guard and the center. The guard wasn't quick enough to get to him to get to stop his momentum. He just plowed right into the center, never saw it coming, and hit him so hard that the center took out the backside guard as well. So I think on both occasions, like Kenny Clark was able to just come in around the back and was like, there's nobody here anymore. Like all of the interior of the offensive line has just been taken out by Carl Brooks's initial first move. I, I do think like Tyler Smith has played at an all pro kind of level at guard for, for Dallas, but he injured his, you know, plantar fasciitis or whatever that's called. That's usually a bad injury for I mean, for anybody, but for an offensive lineman that has to put hundreds of pounds of force through their foot every single snap, I, whether or not he plays, I don't know if you're getting all-pro caliber Tyler Smith back in the lineup. So at that point, you're saying, well, we might have a weakness inside because Tyler Smith might not be Tyler Smith. Tyler Biadish is sort of the weaker point of the interior anyway. Okay, Zach Martin's really good, but he hasn't been like all-pro level Zach Martin that he usually has been this year. And then at right tackle, Terrence Steele is the biggest weakness, and Green Bay would be crazy if they didn't just line Rashawn Gary up on him every single snap. So you start painting that picture, and you're like, actually, this defensive front from Green Bay could cause some problems for that Dallas offensive line. Yeah, and they they refuse to let Jair travel, which I think he's made his feelings about that uh, well and understood and appreciated, but... Like, you know, that, that that is what concerns me. It's like we get, what, some Keyshawn Nixon and, and various other players up the middle against CD. Um, I think that's going to that's gonna cause some problems, no question about it. But, yeah, no, you can't talk yourself into it. Carl Brooks is a, is a good one to mention, a guy who 
Great off the charts in college. Didn't test. I mean, tested very, very poorly. But it's clearly a good football player. Um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting. But I also do wonder, though. I mean, Dallas's run game hasn't obviously been super efficient. Pollard has been a bit of a letdown. But this is a big game script game to me too. Of course, they all are. But if, if Dallas comes out to an early lead, I think it gets even more difficult for, for Green Bay to kind of mount a comeback here. If they have control, I think they could kind of you know make yeah. it difficult for Dallas as well. You're right. I think it really is. Like the start of this game is really important for either side. And then the other just X factor element in all this is: Are you going to get? amazing Dak Prescott or like bad Dak Prescott and I don't know there's a pattern for when they those show up other than simply to say they basically determine the outcome of the game like Dak Prescott has five games this season with a PFF game grade of 90 or better including a 97 which I haven't checked but that's one of the best grades we've ever given a player in a single game for at quarterback he's also got three games with a PFF grade under 50, including one of 39.4. And those games, we have the upset random loss against Arizona. Um, We have the expected but also bad loss against San Francisco. And then we have the Buffalo game in Week 15. Like, if you get bad Dak Prescott, and as I said, I don't know that there's a cause for that, but some days he just isn't there. If you get bad Dak Prescott, the Cowboys are in trouble. If they get good Dak Prescott, then I think, you know, it's very difficult to stop this team because of everything they can bring to the table. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I guess it's hard to kind of break down how you get good or bad Dak Prescott right. based on, you know. But, yeah, I mean, he's got to step up and play a good game. It helps that they're at home. They probably thought they were a wild card for, what, the first 14 weeks of the year, and now you get to be in Jerry World. Um, I guess the last piece I'll throw in, too, and I know Matt LaFleur, it's funny because Matt LaFleur is kind of infamous for, you know, kicking a field goal against the Buccaneers. But we saw Matt LaFleur go for two down eight and beat the New Orleans Saints this year. He's made, I think he's taken massive strides in game management. That could come come up in a big, you know, situation in this game. I think the coaching edge from a game management standpoint does go in Green Bay's way. Um and that could be interesting. Matt LaFleur, I think, has a quietly very strong case for coach of the year that isn't being mentioned pretty much anywhere. I mean, the stuff that you mentioned, the fact that they did adapt the offense to suit Jordan Love as the season went on, and I think that happened in a couple of different ways. Number one, they got more aggressive um, and let him throw the ball down the field more. And number two, I think they realized that Jordan Love's actually capable of doing a lot more than they thought he was sort of mentally within the offense and actually opened the playbook up, like broadened the spectrum of what they were asking him to do. And I think both those two things are good coaching. And then again, the Packers were supposed to be bad this year. Like the fact that they're a playoff team in the first place and every one of these young players, like the youngest roster in the league and all of them on the offense anyway, look like they're good. Like all these receivers, Jaden Reed, Dontavian Wicks, like Christian uh, Watson hasn't even been in the lineup recently and it hasn't mattered. Tucker Kraft, Luke Musgrave, like all these guys look like they're solid players. You have to look at that and say, that's a pretty impressive job from Matt LaFleur. And instead, you know, we're, we're giving the award to Stefanski, to Harbaugh, to, you know, whoever, to, to, to Miko Ryans. I haven't seen many people mention um, LaFleur. Good point. It's a good point. I, I mean, this is the youngest offense in playoff history. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then they... They had a kind of a downstretch. I think that's probably why. They did obviously go through some hills and valleys throughout the year. But, yeah, I mean, he should be talked about way, way more. For all this talk that Dallas is unstoppable at home, you know, they're, they're crazy production at home, it's a different Dallas team, et cetera, et cetera, 
it's not like they've played like many good teams at home. Like, okay, they finally got the win against a quote unquote good team in Seattle, but that was a that that went down to the wire, and they barely got over the line there. Um, they they beat Philadelphia at home. Philadelphia is collapsing right now. They might not even be good at all. Uh, and then they beat Detroit, and they just got over the line in that one as well. So and you know were helped along the way, shall we say, with with officiating. Now they were also helped the other way with officiating. But anyway, there was controversy in that game, let's say. So I would argue that this might be the toughest test they have faced at home given the current state of the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, I know. The home road splits are always funny. I, I think maybe more so I just think maybe there's signal in they're playing in a dome. You know, they obviously are have, have a high-flying offense, and it's not just like, oh, they're in Dallas versus the road. I think it's more that just just crowd noise and all these various elements. Um, they're not just like, they're just become a magically better football team because they're they're in Texas. <laughs> okay, so Dallas favored by seven and a half. Steve is going with Green Bay to cover that spread and keep it within um, within that number. Where are you going? I'm with Steve on this one. Same. I think we are universally agreed that this will be a tighter game than seven and a half points, even though Dallas are at home in Jerry World. Okay, Sunday at 8 p.m., we have the Los Angeles Rams and Matthew Stafford going back home to take on the Detroit Lions, who host a playoff game. Uh, Won the division for the first time since the early Barry Sanders administration. Um, It is a three-point game. Detroit favored by three, so effectively just the home field advantage. Where are you going? Yep. So, well, I'm taking Rams plus three, but that's that's the end of the segment. But uh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So, you know, I, first of all, this is like the narrative game of the week. I, yeah. I have no affiliation with either organization. I think I might be like quietly just having a tear roll down my cheek as, as Stafford <laughs> runs out onto Ford Field. Um, I just don't love this matchup for Detroit. Obviously, Aiden Hutchinson has been phenomenal, and they do get back Lee McNeil and probably James Houston. But you know, Rob Havenstein's a solid right tackle where we get most of Hutchinson's reps. He does move around, play on the inside, etc. Um, but I, I think they'll be able to do enough to hold up. I'm sure you'll see a lot of Kyron Williams kept in to pass protect. He's a great pass blocking running back. And I just worry about Cooper Cup and Puka Nakua against the secondary. However, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson element is interesting. I could see him play as a full-time slot. They have plenty of safeties. Um you know, with Branch and and Kirby Joseph and Tracy Walker and all those guys, I guess Branch could play in the slot as well. But mm-hmm. Detroit has been terrible this year against slot receivers, bottom five in the NFL in pretty much every metric. But maybe Chauncey Garner Johnson does change that. But nevertheless, I, I just think the Rams are going to be able to score a lot of points here. And while I do think Detroit will as well, so the over here, 51 and a half, I think we could have a very high scoring game here. I just think the Rams make enough plays. And last but not least, no one knows Jared Goff's weak, weak points more than Sean McVay. Oh, man. If Jared Goff, if Jared Goff gets, like, out-schemed by him, if McVay puts Goff into hell and he's just like, see, I told you, this is why I had to go away from you. I knew you don't have the stones to make it happen when, in, when I needed it. My guy over here, Stafford, has. That, that would be a brutal beatdown from Jared Goff. Like, that's awful. I... <laughs> it does kind of I, I agree with you I think this will be a high scoring game I think both offenses have the capacity to put up points um, and it, it is going to be like which one do you have more confidence in Stafford or Goff and even though they've had I think vaguely comparable seasons this year like 
they're very close together in PFF grade. Stafford's at 85.9, Goff's at 84.4. Stafford has a wildly higher big-time throw rate, but they've both averaged 7.6 yards per attempt. Um, Jared Goff has had much more volume, has had uh, more sort of efficiency in terms of completion rate, all those kinds of things. But I think generally they've had quite similar years. But you you have, I think, way more confidence that, that Stafford won't melt down in the game than you do with Goff. And, you know, you can argue that, that Jared Goff had effectively an MVP caliber year outside of like four games where he was terrible, you know? And, but, but those happened. And you're like, if those happen again, the Lions are screwed. They're not winning a game. Like, they had a run where he had, f- he had three games in four outings that were 47.6 PFF grade against Chicago, um, 52.7 the next week against Green Bay. Then he had a, ha- a reasonable game against the, the Saints. And then again, Chicago, 44.8. Those are terrible games. And he can't have that kind of performance if they want to beat the Rams. No, definitely not. And look, the Rams, I mean, Raheem Morris has done a great job, but they obviously are not the most loaded unit on defense. Of course, you'll get Aaron Donald, um, you know, and I think you can pick on Jonah Jackson and Graham Glasgow on the interior a little bit. Frank Ragno is great, but it always kind of seems to be dealing with something. But it's obviously a very, very good offensive line. But I think Aaron Donald's still going to get his. But the one thing that makes it interesting is the Lions run defense is pretty considerably better than the Rams run defense. And I think both these teams are going to want to run the ball a ton. I mean, they... Yeah has gone back to a very, very high, you know, uh, run rate. And then it sets up a lot of, the, you know, not as much play action as the, you know, the golf days, but, you know, a lot of gap and inside zone and, and a different run scheme. And then taking shots at a shotgun with Stafford um, in, in this kind of new high flying offense. But the Lions run defense is really, really good. So that that will be interesting if, if maybe they're getting in too many second long, third and longs. Whereas the flip side, I think Ben Johnson's going to try to run the ball 40 combined times with Jameer Gibbs and David Montgomery, if he can. It, obviously, if the game script is negative, then he can't do that. But I imagine that's his approach. Say, hey, I want to win a game where Jared goes 17 of 25 for 240 and a touchdown. Like that's what that's what we're like. That's that's a good outcome for us. If it's a gunslinging battle, like you said, I think we both land in the same bucket. Though it is worth noting that this is by far the lowest turnover-worthy play rate of Matthew Stafford's career. Like. I, I still think you have to have more confidence in his ability to not melt down than Jared Goff's, but Stafford always kind of had the reputation of a guy that's going to give you one at some point in the game and then, you know, throughout his career and has really cleaned that up this year. Like, he hasn't done that much, if at all. Um, his turnover-worthy play rate is one of the best in the NFL. You know, he has 12 all season long, and that's resulted in 11 interceptions. Like, he's had incredibly low turnover worthy play numbers and has actually been quite unlucky with interceptions I mean is he just having a really good year this year or is he do a bad game where he has a couple of turnover worthy plays yeah no it's a good point it's a good point and, and we keep saying like kind of these buzzwords and cliches but like to put some data behind it like and again these things I'm not saying are stable but like Matthew Stafford on third and fourth down this year 87 of 139 1090 yards 12 touchdowns to one pick uh, it's kind of the one split where Jared Goff's had hasn't been quite as good. 109 of 174, 1150, 10 touchdowns, but six picks. And if you go back and look at those, some of those turnovers on third and fourth down, like it's forcing things in some of those ugly games you pointed out. I think two of them were against Baltimore, which I know Baltimore kind of embarrassed every quarterback they played or most of them. But in a lot of those high leverage moments, it, it just like that's where the, the issues pop up. They've both been phenomenal in the red zone once they get down there. Um, but I just think, 
the third and longs and stuff like that. It just, yeah, like you said, it's maybe maybe we're due for some regression on the turnover he plays, but. Um, I just I worry more about Jared Goff. Yeah, and by the way, three of his turnover-worthy plays came in that final game he played against the Giants. You know where the the Rams just couldn't weren't right and they couldn't seem to function. Um, obviously, he sat out the final week of the season, and Carson Wentz was in there. But like the last game Stafford played, he had three turnover-worthy plays in the game, and that accounts for a quarter of his season. That one performance. So it is a, a slightly weird dynamic here, where you're like, well. I definitely have more faith in in Stafford to not implode than Goff, but like the last game, Stafford kind of imploded. Like we saw, it, it's definitely it's within the range of outcomes in any given Matthew Stafford game is for him to go a little bit crazy. Even even the Super Bowl run they went on, right? Like we sort of forget he was incredible in the postseason, way better than in the regular season where his numbers were nuts. But even in like against Tampa Bay, he tried to throw that away in the end zone before he went on the run and like did the crazy thing. So. I think that's one element that people are kind of ignoring is that Stafford has always had that tendency to, you know, maybe give you an opportunity that you don't that you wouldn't get otherwise um, because of the of how sort of gung ho and potentially reckless slash aggressive he is with the ball. Oh, very good point. Very good point. I guess the last thing got to throw it in. You mentioned how the Rams sat their guys, which looks genius in hindsight. They've always been about rest. They they kind of led the four. Uh, led the front of not playing in the preseason. They still get the six seed anyway for not playing anybody. The Lions are not going to have Khalif Raymond, and I'm guessing here, but I don't Probably. think Sam Laporta is going to play in this game either. He yeah. might. I, we'll see. He will not be 100% healthy if he does play. And that's, you know, two guys that are top five and, you know, receiving options. For, I mean, Laporta's second, uh, and I would imagine Raymond's behind Josh Reynolds, maybe fourth. Like, or I guess Jameson Williams. Anyway, <laughs> bad, bad radio, but... Like, th- those are meaningful losses. I mean, Raymond in special teams and as a receiver, explosive play guy. And, of course, Laporta is that third down outlet. He's always the target, it seems like, um, on a lot of those high leverage downs. It's a huge, huge potential loss. Just makes things so much easier. Amon Ra is, is amazing, but it, it just it makes things a lot easier for the Rams. No, it's a really good point to bring up. Like, two opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of how to treat those dead games at the end of the season. The Rams have always, whether it's preseason or whether it's a game like this, treated it as, like, nobody of consequence is playing in those games. Like, we are going to play a full backup roster and try and get out of it with it with you know any but nobody at risk whereas the lions were like we're going to ride this momentum we're going to play the starters we're going to you know push into the postseason and, and try and ride this wave of us against the world siege mentality that manifests off the back of that dallas game where they got screwed with the ridiculous play at the end um and it cost them i mean they lost sam laporta in that game and i agree with you i i don't think he plays and even if he does it's not going to look like sam laporta i mean it's effectively the same injury that Travis Kelsey suffered before the season. And even when he came back, it, it didn't look like Travis Kelsey for a couple of weeks. So, yeah, a huge potential loss for Detroit and kind of showed you the reason that a lot of teams don't want to risk anybody in those games. So, okay, you you said you were going with the Rams. Uh, Steve is also taking the Rams. I, I'm going to buy into the Lions. I, I've been impressed by them this season. I do think they are still riding you know, something of a, a wave of us against the world mentality. I think in particular, I think they're aware of the narrative, you know. They do not want to get their pants pulled down by Matthew Stafford coming home for the first time they're hosting a playoff game since, you know, the early 90s. They don't want that to happen. I feel like they're going to get it done and they're going to find a way to win, even with a three-point margin. Yep, I, I respect it. Last game. 
Monday, 8 p.m., Philadelphia Eagles against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Buccaneers are still three-point dogs at home despite the absolute collapse of the Philadelphia Eagles down the stretch. So what's your take on this game? It is a fascinating one. Both quarterbacks coming into this game not healthy. We saw Baker kind of limping all over the place in the Carolina game. Jalen Hurts had the dislocated, I want to say middle finger of his throwing hand, yep. um, which looked pretty gnarly. Yeah. You know, it, it's weird. It's been weirdly quiet out of Philadelphia this week where we haven't heard anything about A.J. Brown really, and he looked in like serious pain with the knee injury. He also has a history of knee issues. And then Hurts, I mean, I'm sure they'll just tape that finger to the next one and, and, and ride it out. But that is fascinating to me because I do wonder, do they avoid the tush push? Do they avoid design run and zone read and, and these different elements where Hertz has to hold the ball a lot or do different, you know, like, you know, hand it up, like all these things where his, his finger injury could be a, a factor. Like think about when Justin Herbert was wearing that wonky little contraption for the middle of the year, like they went away from that stuff. If they were running, it was just, it was, it was straight handoff. There was no, um, like the RPO game went way down over that stretch, things like that. End of the day, we'll get into matchups and stuff. I just, this is totally narrative based. This is the antithesis of PFF analysis. I just don't see how a potential last game for Jason Kelsey, Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, maybe Lane Johnson, maybe, maybe not those guys, but I, I just, they're going to get up for it. They're, I, I just, I don't see how they lose this game. Yeah, this is, so on paper, I think this is the least interesting game of all of them. And yet because of the storylines and because of the dynamic of at play with both teams, I actually think it's fascinating. Like it might, I'm not sure I can predict it in, in either direction, but I do think it's going to be compelling because of that. It is amazing what's happened to this Philadelphia team. Like the defense has been struggling all season long. It kind of made sense. They had a significant amount of turnover on that side of the ball by design. You know, they, they were going to go in a different direction at several spots. Uh, some of those players haven't been healthy. You know, N'Kobe Dean was supposed to be the, the anchor in the middle at linebacker, and he's played like five games and less than 200 snaps. They've been dragging guys in off the street, just veterans hoping that it'll fix it. Shaquille Leonard, once he got released by the Colts, you know, Zach Cunningham, Nicholas Morrow, like the linebacker group is, is a mess. The front four hasn't been generating the pressure that they expected it to, and that's a huge loss. And then the back end, you're getting like the worst versions of both James Bradbury and Darius Slay for more money because you had to re-up Bradbury in the offseason. Just the defense, a disaster. You have already made a coaching change. Like you've tried to pull the pin on the grenade and do the, the big change. You, you handed the keys over to Matt Patricia that hasn't fixed it. So the defensive side, I think, is a mess. And Baker Mayfield and the Bucks' offense should be able to have some joy. Then the other side of the ball, number one, that started to collapse as well. And two, in the process, everybody got hurt. Like A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, uh, Jalen Hurts, um, Cam Jurgens at right guard. is like yep. All these guys are dealing with something heading into this game. And the Hurts thing is, like, I've never seen anybody look as nonchalant as he did about, oh, look, my middle finger is like pointed in a different direction. He looked like annoyed that it had happened, not, oh, crap, my finger's wrecked. He was like, ah, like, of course, that went wrong as well. So, and, and okay, you know, they popped it back into place. He went back in the game that I think during the time, you know, like that kind of thing can happen. It, the swelling hasn't happened yet. Like it hasn't, your body hasn't had a time to react to the injury. But that's a, like a dislocated finger on his throwing hand, his middle finger. I mean, that, you don't want that adding to the woes of an offense that's already not firing in all cylinders. 
again, who knows if A.J. Brown is going to be 100%, Devontae Smith. I think all of them will play, but I don't know if they're all going to be the, the same guys that they are at their best, which means, you know, the potentially the stronger side of this Philadelphia team is just it's just working at like 80% capacity against an aggressive Tampa Bay defense that is going to come after them, that is going to force them into making, you know, big plays and, and executing. And that can be the difference between executing and not, right? Well, 110%. No, and, and I think particularly with Philadelphia, where I think they have some fragility within their offensive structure, where, I mean, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith account for a massive target share. They don't really have much behind those guys at receiver. Um, you know, some solid pieces, you know, like Quiz Watkins, guys that can make plays. But it's a very concentrated offense. And obviously Dallas Goddard back now from his his forearm injury, so he might be a big focal point here. Um, but it's just, like, I think it impacts them more than, than many other teams where the drop-off from their top two to the next guy is as precipitous as any team in the NFL. And like you said, both of those guys – are dealing with something Browns looks more serious. So yeah, it, it's concerning. It, it really, really is. Same time, the Bucks pressure rate is is bottom ten. I think maybe even bottom five for us this year. They are gonna be aggressive. Todd Bowles, he does step it up come playoff time and dial some stuff up. He is still as creative as any defensive play caller in the league. But I think they will find their spots and pick their spots. And then the flip side for me, the tackles and and Tampa have been awesome. We know Tristan Wirfs is elite. Luke Gadecki's been great, but that interior is very susceptible, and I think you are going to see a Fletcher Cox, Jalen Carter, you know, just really tee off of the middle, and Baker's mobility, I think, is going to be limited. As bad as the defense has been, if Darius Slay can get back and give Mike Evans some problems, um, and, and then you get that pressure from the interior, I think that could be a nightmarish outing for Tampa's offense as well. Yeah. Um, also, you know, Jalen Hurts has been typically for his entire career very good against the blitz. Like, he's not a quarterback that wilts under that kind of pressure. He finds the ways to expose it. He finds the gaps in behind. He's able to avoid the pressure even when it arrives and make some plays despite the blitz. So it's an interesting matchup in that way. DeAndre Swift, by the way, is another guy from that Eagles offense that's dealing with something coming into this game. So, like, every significant player – if the skill position players and their quarterback and a guy in the offensive line are all dealing with some kind of injury coming into the game, you know, that's it's significant enough to have the missing practice time midweek, the, the, the practice you want them all out there. I think it's a pretty significant issue. One last issue um, or one last variable heading into this game, the current weather for this game is for rain, like and not, you know, light rain, moderate rain is how it's being termed. I mean that. I mean, I don't want to say all bets are off because we're about to make <laughs> make calls. But like, you introduce significant rain into a game like this. That I mean, we are radically ramping up the variance that's about to take place. For sure, and I think that would skew in Philly's direction. Tampa's run game obviously has been you know a, a problem for a couple of years now, and Philly's run defense not quite as elite as it's been, but still good. Tampa does have a good run defense, but I trust Philly's run offense. But at the same time, though, like I really do think the lack of, you know, the, the you know, conflict they can create for ends, reading his own read and all the stuff that Jalen Hurts adds, you know, just the gravity he has that maybe goes away. But nevertheless, I, I, would, I would if it's a run if it's a running based game for both teams, I'd be even more confident in Philly than I already am. I also think that, you know, OK, 
People have been asking me for weeks, uh, is it time to jump back on the Baker Mayfield wagon? And I've been saying, no, I'm out. I'm permanently out on Baker Mayfield. He had his opportunities. I backed him for too long and I got burned and now I am done. I am not buying back into Baker Mayfield. So number one, Baker Mayfield this year has 24 turnover-worthy plays and 10 interceptions. So he's already been riding his luck a little bit, right? Number two, Adding rain to a Baker Mayfield game feels like you are dramatically increasing the number of turnover-worthy plays from that game from Baker Mayfield. Um, so I'm not being suckered in again. I, it's, everyone's going to be like, oh, the Eagles are collapsing. They're in crisis mode. And yeah, I mean, they might be. I still, I'm not buying it. Baker is going to make a mistake. When crunch time happens, he's going to go back to being the Baker Mayfield that got him run out of Cleveland and run out of Carolina and run out of the Rams. And it's not going to happen. So that's that's what my point. Uh, Tampa Bay is not covering three, even at home. Philadelphia is going to cover it. I'm with you on the cover. I'm mostly with you on the Baker. Like, I think he <laughs> earned himself a decent little deal. Um, I, the biggest thing for me was bringing his pressure to sack rate way, way down. Um, and, and I think you saw, like, reasons why that happened. But, yeah, like, he's I, – I don't see him becoming an upper echelon quarterback. He'll get, like, a – I don't even know about Gino. I think it'll be like even a little bit less than a Gino deal, um, which, you know, credit to him. Like he earned something. But yeah, I just, well, they lead the league in play action this year. Um, and he still does. He puts the ball in harm's way too often. And like, we're falling in love with the winner of the NFC South. Like, let's, let's, let's pump the brakes. Like, it's the NFC South. It's one of the worst divisions I think I can remember in my lifetime. So let's, you know. But, but, but hey, but congrats to the Buck. They, they won the division. Congrats. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm being a bit facetious, but I am. My point generally is that, look, I, I think Baker Mayfield has been riding his luck a little bit this season. And if that swings against him even a little bit, you know, one play, one turnover, like these are the, these are the plays that, def- that determine the outcome of postseason games. And if Baker doesn't have a really good, clean game, which gets incredibly hard once it's wet, once this, the conditions are sloppy, and I think you're right, like they need to pass the ball more than the Eagles do to win this game. It's just starting to mount up in a way that you're like, I, I don't have a ton of confidence in Baker Mayfield making that happen, even in what has been a you know a pretty good season for him. And I do think more clutch than he's been at any other point in his career. Like he is he has made a lot of clutch plays this season. I still feel like that's a lot to ask from him to make this game go in their direction. Yep, no doubt about it. And, and uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, the Eagles' defense has struggled. They really, really have. Yeah. I, I just think, you know, it's it, quietly, too, not only Slay coming back, but Avante Maddox, their issue's been in the slot. I mean, they were the worst team in the NFL for a while there. However, Sidney Brown, the rookie, who wasn't a full-time player but did have the, like, 96-yard pick six a couple weeks ago, and Reed Blankenship, who really has been, like, the guy in the back end that keeps everything in front of him. You know, it's why you added Kevin Byer to the deadline. You still now, you now have, you know, your top three corners. They'll figure it out. But you could poke some holes. I, I just, I think they're going to do enough. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a game where, like, I don't, you can't have confidence in either team. I mean, Philadelphia is genuinely in crisis right now. That defense is awful and it's missing even more players. Everybody of significance on the offensive side is hurt. And as you said, like they have some schematic issues as well. And yet Tampa Bay is like, they barely got a winning record in a bad division. Their quarterback is Baker Mayfield. Like there's a lot to not love about them as well. And, you know, their defense has got vulnerabilities. I, you can't, I don't think you could be confident in either team making this happen, but obviously somebody's got to win it. And I I think ultimately my money would be on the Eagles, even as three-point favorites. But 
Tampa Bay winning this game would not shock me in the slightest. No, I agree. I agree. I'm with you on Eagles minus three, um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. It's not a confident pick. <laughs> that, that's for sure. So you're going, yeah, we're all going with the Eagles to cover three. Okay, Steve's yeah. also gone with that that direction as well. Okay, that is our uh, super wildcard weekend predictions and preview all wrapped up. We will be back tomorrow. We'll have the, uh, the boo-boo breakdown, I think, with Vic as well to talk about some of the injuries that we mentioned today. Um, but also, that's when we're going to cover all of the coaching moves, the firings, all that kind of stuff. So let us know in the email, um, nflpodcast.pff.com. What angle do you want to hear us address, whether it's Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, Mike Vrabel, all these kinds of things? How do you want us to talk about it? What do you want us to cover? What do you want to hear our takes on? Brad, it's been a pleasure. Good, sir. You're back tomorrow for that show. That's right. We're running it back. All right. We will uh, talk to you then. Thanks for listening.